Well, good morning and welcome back City Light South Church. It is so good to be with you again on this Sunday morning. Thank you so much for joining us on our stream. We're, um, you know, we're back in the Gospel of Mark today. We've been in this series called Jesus Explored. And today we're in chapter six. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter six, verse one. We're gonna go up through verse 29. I'll read it again in pieces uh, as we go and make some comments along the way. Um, so before we do that, why don't, I, why don't I pray for us and then, we'll, and then we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us that we can get together around this uh, technology and in this format um, to continue to seek you and your kingdom. Help us to listen. Help us to have ears to hear your word today. Lord, that your word might sink deeply into our souls, that you might write it on our hearts, that you might change us to make us think more like you and act more like you and desire more like you. Jesus, we need you. We, we need to be conformed to be more like you. So help us in these, in these moments and in the days that follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I said, we've been in this series now. We're, this is week eight uh, that we've been in the series, Jesus Explored. And Mark's ha- Mark has this central question that he's asking us all along the way. And it's this question of who is, who is Jesus? We saw that explicitly. We saw the disciples asking that when they were in the boat and Jesus had just calmed the storm. You know, they're, they're in awe. They're, they're, they're afraid, even, it says, and, and saying, who, is, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? Um, clearly, this is, the, Jesus is a, is a king with authority. He's, he's, a, he's a man uh, like no other, and he's the son of, of God. Um, we're going to see some more examples that Mark kind of selectively picks out for us today as to who Jesus is. And then we're going to make some connections, not only with who Jesus is, but then what that has to do with our identity, your identity. Because who Jesus is has massive implications for who you are, who you understand, and you know yourself to be. You know, the Bible talks a lot, the New Testament talks a lot about us uh, as Christians being in Christ, with Christ, joined with Christ in Him. Uh, We have so many, all the benefits of the gospel are tied to the fact that when we are saved, when He saves us, that we are now included in Him. We're somehow uh, joined together, united together with Christ. Because you are united with Christ, if you're a Christian, you're united with Christ, that means you're, you're justified. You now have a right restored relationship with God. Uh, because you're united with Christ, because you're in Christ, you are being made and transformed and renewed in His image. You're being sanctified. Uh, because you're in Christ, you're, you're a son or a daughter. You're adopted in the family. You're a co-heir and all the, the glory and the benefits that Jesus earned for you on the cross, we get to share in those things now because we are joined to him. And here's the implication, and here's what I want us to, kind of the main idea that I'm going to talk about this morning. The more you know who Jesus is, the more you know who you are as a, as a Christian, and you know where you're going. The more you know who Jesus is, the more you know who you are and where you're going. And the more you know where you're going, the more you're going to be able to keep going when stuff gets really hard. 
especially when following Christ becomes costly. And we're going we're gonna to see real hints at that um, for the first time, really for the first time, not only that Jesus himself is, uh, you know, being rejected and in danger of, if, you know, for his life, but now we're going to see that sort of bleed over into his followers this week. And that has implications for us because the, Jesus's fate and the disciples' fate and our fate are kind of bound up together. So let's dive into Mark 6 with that in mind, and we'll see more of who Jesus is. Verse 1, he, Jesus, left there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said, what what is this wisdom that's been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Uh, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. So Jesus is back on the road. He's back traveling with his disciples after the amazing miracle encounters that we saw last week. And he's really at peak popularity here. Uh, He's just done all these things, and people are still, they're flocking to him from everywhere, even here in his hometown. The word about Jesus has made it all the way back to Nazareth, where he grew up. Um, This is, he's going to stay at this peak popularity for a little bit longer before it just kind of tumbles off a cliff, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. But here in Mark 6, we get little foreshadowing, little hints that it's coming. Uh, Up until now, it's mostly been the the uptight religious leaders that have taken offense at Jesus. And now we're going to see another group of people uh, that start to get a bit annoyed by him. And it's not who you would necessarily expect. It's it's the very people Jesus grew up with, his old neighbors, his, his old schoolmates. They don't really, they're not really loving him right here. And it all started one Sabbath weekend. Jesus is back in his old synagogue where he had grown up hearing uh, the word of God taught and proclaimed week in and week out. He's back there and he's the one doing the teaching. Um, Now, if you want to remember, if you need a little review, a reminder of what Jesus has been teaching and preaching this whole time, you will find a summary back in chapter 1, verse 15. Let me read that for you again. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the summary of of what Jesus taught. And what he's telling everybody in that, in his teaching, is that all the promises that God made through Moses, through the prophets, through David in the Old Testament, these are all coming to pass. They're all being fulfilled now in, in, in me and in your time. Uh, there was the promise that God would restore a king uh, to a godly king on the throne in Jerusalem. And so people were looking forward to this. And Jesus is saying it's happening now. Um, and that's why people everywhere need to turn back to God. They need to repent. They need to start following God and listening to his word rather than following the ways of the world. Um, that's the message. And then to confirm that message, Jesus performed all of these amazing miracles to show the crowds and his own disciples that he was who he said he was. Uh, 
that he was sent by God, and you should be able to recognize him. But the people of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, they had heard all these things about Jesus. They'd heard about the miracles, they'd heard a bit of his teaching, and now he's there in the flesh, and they don't love it. Uh, the people are, are a bit confused by the things that, uh, that Jesus said, and then they get offended. I, I don't know, have you ever been to like a get together with a group of friends that you haven't seen in person for many years? I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember that the time you could go like a decade without seeing a single photo or getting one shred of information about a person. You know, strange times. And now I feel like we, this doesn't happen as much anymore with Facebook, but um, I can remember a few years ago, I was scrolling through Facebook and, and came upon a, a photo of somebody that uh, I remember as a little kid uh, growing up in my neighborhood. And this is a kid that, uh, you know, everybody picked on. And I, like, I can't even remember why. I just know everybody picked on him. And I, but in this photo I saw on Facebook, I mean, it was very clear that this guy had grown up and that he had been to the gym a lot. And I was like, whoa. It was pretty surprising that it was the same guy. Um, I think that's kind of what's going on here in Nazareth, but it's even more intense. People are like, man, we know you. You're Jesus from the block, right? Like, we know your mom. Uh, we know your, your dad who, who died a long time ago. We, we know him. He, he was just a carpenter. He's a working class dude like, like we are. I mean, who, who are you to come along and, and be this sort of high and mighty teacher? We don't. We're not really into that. And it says in verse 3 that they were offended by him. And what that means is they, they just wanted him to leave. Just like the, the pig farmers, remember that last week? They just said they just wanted him to go. If you uh, look over in Luke chapter 4, Luke records this same sort of series of events in Nazareth, and, and he adds a few more details that Mark doesn't. Uh, he said that, Jesus, when he was in the synagogue, he actually uh, responded to the unbelief of the people in Nazareth, and he rebuked them. He kind of, he had a goat. He told them off and said, you know, for their, for their lack of faith. And the people got so angry that uh, they, they actually got together and they sort of mobbed him and, and, and tried to throw him over a cliff. They, they weren't successful, but man, they were, they were angry, not just a little bit angry, but a lot angry. And uh, why were they angry? They, they just did not like the fact that this guy that they thought they knew, they were so familiar with, was here telling them that they needed to repent and they needed to listen. Mark quotes Jesus' words here that a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and by his own extended family. And by honored here, he's not talking about the fact that people go around wearing Jesus' t-shirts or having Jesus' haircuts or anything like that. He's talking but about people listening and then obeying his words. That's what it means to honor a prophet, is to submit to his authority and, and do what he says. Jesus' experience, though, is no different than all the other prophets that came before him, the ones in the Old Testament, the ones that God sent to the people, telling them to repent and to turn back to God. Some of those prophets got kicked out of their own hometowns, some of them um, got, you know, pursued by, the, by uh, angry mobs. Some of them were killed. Mark points out uh, that Jesus, because the people in Nazareth don't believe, was not able to do a miracle there. And let me explain that there. there there's obviously a little bit of exaggeration there in, how, in what Mark says. There's a little bit of hyperbole 
How do we know that? Because in the very next verse, it says that he actually did heal a few people, just not many. Um, which, man, if, if, if you, like today, if somebody came into our, uh, you know, circles or our town and, and actually miraculously healed somebody, that would be on the front page of the advertiser. And yet here, Jesus only heals a few people. And it's like, man, that was nothing. Jesus would have done so much more if the people would have listened and had faith in him. It's pretty amazing. Now, I've, I've heard preachers kind of misuse this and say that Jesus actually was totally incapable of doing a miracle there because the miracles that Jesus did were dependent on the people having faith, that uh, without their faith, Jesus' hands were tied. Uh, you know, the faith is like the petrol in the tank, and there's no petrol here, so you can't do anything. That's not what Mark's saying, because remember, he did do some miracles. He just didn't do many. The problem isn't that Jesus is unable or powerless here. The problem here is that the people didn't want Jesus to do a miracle, and he's not going to do a miracle for people who don't want it. They want him to sit down and shut up. See, it it only takes a, a very, very small amount of inconsistent, weak faith for, for Jesus to come in and, and do what is impossible for us. Jesus will take the smallest amount of mustard seed faith and make it grow into a mountain because it's not about us. It's not about our faith. That's not, what, that's not the headline. That's not what gets the, 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 the glory. It's about Jesus and his glory and his power. That's what's going on here. Jesus chose not to do many miracles in Nazareth because the people were dead set against him. He wasn't out to wow the crowds. Uh, He was out to change their hearts. But the people in Nazareth, their hearts were completely closed. Why do you think these people were so offended by Jesus? I mean, based on the questions they ask him about his identity, it seems like they were very familiar with him. Um, and, and, And because he came from them, they sort of felt like they owned him and they, they wanted to control him, but he wouldn't let them. His, he was being controlled by God the Father, and, and, and they didn't like that. His blood family couldn't control him. And, you know, that's what trips us up, too. Maybe you grew up in church singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But then you stopped kind of listening to his actual words. I mean, Jesus is fine as long as he tells me that he loves me. And he helps me out when I get in a bind. But I don't want to have to turn away from following other things. I don't want to have to give up control. You know, and Jesus, he stands in the line of all the prophets before him. And he's calling to you now to give up control, to surrender, to repent, to turn back to God. And that's the very thing that got him killed. Jesus is the prophet who gets rejected. Let's go on to verse 7, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. 
So now Jesus is back to healing, uh, but he sends out his disciples to do it um, with him and for him. We've seen this before. Jesus was rejected by his blood family, but now he's going to be surrounded by his spiritual family, his disciples, the 12. Remember he said that in chapter 3, verse 35, whoever does God's will, that's my family. You're my family. You do God's will, you're in the family. And now here again in chapter 6, he's got his spiritual family, his immediate family around him. And they're gonna, he's going to clarify for them what it looks like for them to do God's will. So first thing it looks like is it looks like going out. It looks like leaving home, leaving comfort, leaving the familiar, and going and doing something that's a bit tough, a bit risky. But Jesus here, he's the, he's the commander-in-chief. He's sending out his army. He doesn't send them out alone. He sends them out in pairs, and he doesn't send them out powerless. He gives them authority to cast out demons. The same authority he had, he gives to his family. See, they're joined to him, and the fact that they're now joined to him in one family changes everything. He sends them out also to, uh, empty-handed. Empty-handed. He sends them out vulnerable, in weakness, I mean, because if no one welcomes these guys in, then they're sleeping rough outside. It doesn't mean that they, they, they had permission to change the message, to water it down and make it palatable so that more people would welcome it. No, they had, to, they had the message. They couldn't change it. And so they had to have faith that Jesus would provide, that they wouldn't have to sleep outside, that, that at least somebody would welcome in. They had to trust Jesus completely. These guys, they go out humbly, they don't have an entourage, which is such a contrast to the way we think the gospel needs to go out today. We, we, try, we think the gospel, if it's going to get out, it has to have bells and whistles, has to have bands and clever marketing and really good coffee. I mean, I love coffee, but, you know, the gospel can stand on its own. Don't need anything else but the gospel to save the hearts that Jesus has already prepared. These guys were all about the message, all about the gospel. And if anyone repented and believed, then guess what? The messengers had a place to stay for the night and they had food to eat. If not, then they just shake the dust off and they move on to the next town. Verse 13 says that they did have some success. They cast out demons and they healed many sick people. Um, Notice we never see any of the 12 We never see any of the 12 disciples uh, getting a big following in Jesus' lifetime. None of them get a big audience. Uh, They did some of the same miracles Jesus did, but they don't go off and start attracting their own crowds. Jesus sent them out weak. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They had to depend on God to provide. And the temptation, I'm sure, was there to kind of cut corners or to to go rogue, but they didn't do it. They were never experts in healing people. And they knew that. They only said the words that Jesus gave them to say. They did it exactly by the book, which is instructive for us today, isn't it? That's why it's so important for us to know God. Because the more we know God, and we know his heart, and we know his word, the more we know what to say. We know what he's created us and sent us to do. We can get caught up in lots of things, but it takes real humility, real weakness, and real dependence to do the will of God. And Jesus showed the disciples here exactly how it's done. Eventually, even the highest official, the king of the place, is going to hear about it. Let's move on. 
Verse 14, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. Okay, now that's present day. Now Mark's going to give us a flashback to explain what Herod just said. So here starts the flashback in verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And John the, Baptist, or John the Baptist's head, she said. At once, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did, and the guests he did not want to refuse her, the king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. So this is the long section with the, with the flashback. It starts out with King Herod wondering the, the question that we're all asking here, that Mark is wanting us to ask, who is Jesus? And the answer he lands on is, well, he must be John the Baptist, who I beheaded back from the dead. Uh, because he's got the same powers. There's just too much similarity between John the Baptist and Jesus. They, it, they must be the same guy. That explains all the miracles. That explains the preaching, all of it. So now Mark has to explain to his readers some 30 years later in Rome why John the Baptist ended up dead, because last time we saw him in chapter 1, he was very much alive. So starts in, starting in verse 17, he gives the backstory of how John the Baptist lost his head. And the short summary is he was killed because he made Herod's, who was the ruler, king, uh, wife, Herodias, made her very angry. And now he wasn't king in the proper sense. He was only like a, a high official um, underneath, you know, the Roman ruler. Um, Herod, though, really wanted to display uh, power and he wanted to display strength to mask over the fact that he was really weak. How, how do we know he was weak? Well, the guy married his brother's wife, which was against the law. So he's obviously got some pretty strong appetites that he couldn't control. And then, then once he marries her, this, this woman uh, absolutely controls him. He has, has him under his thumb. And, and then later on, you see, he doesn't want to be, uh, he doesn't want to um, look stupid in front of the crowds, which is why he has John killed. I don't want to repeat all the story. I just want to highlight a few bits for us. 
Uh, Herodias was married to Herod, but then she used to be married to Herod's brother, who was still alive. And the Jewish law in Leviticus said that you couldn't do that. That was a a no-no. You can't marry your brother's ex. All right? It's wrong. Now, Herod, just so you know this, was not Jewish. He he was Gentile. Um, But he was powerful. And so he did what he he wanted. And you have a guy like John coming to him and saying, uh, you can't do that. Herod's like, well, of course I can. I can do whatever I want. Um, but that didn't stop John. Man, how bold he was going to Herod and telling him the truth in love that he needed to repent. He, Herod considered him to be, it says, a righteous and holy man. And, but he was perplexed because he, he just didn't want to give up his sin, right? He didn't want to give up control. He didn't want to surrender. The cost of repentance was just way too great for him. He loved the world and he loved his own power way too much. Um, but he didn't hate John for, as the messenger. It's a good reminder, I think, for us that we don't have to be afraid to speak the truth in love to people, to call people to repentance. They may not always be angry. They may have to sit and think about it for a while. There's a good chance that they will listen and God will open their eyes. Now, unfortunately, here in this case, uh, Herod's wife, Herodias, she gets her way and, and John ends up locked up in jail. And then one night, Herodias' daughter is performing uh, for Herod in the court, um, and stepdad and all the guests are so impressed that he, you know, they want to shower her with gifts and money and jewels and all the things that he loves. That's what they want to give her. And she goes straight to her mom and says, you know, what should I ask for? And that's her ticket. That's her golden opportunity. I want John the Baptist. I want him dead. I want his head on a plate. And so that's what she does. And because he doesn't want to look foolish in front of the crowds, Herod uh, relents and John dies. So why is this story, why all these details even in Mark's gospel? I mean, it's not about Jesus at all. Uh, It seems like this unnecessary filler. But you got to remember who Mark was writing to. Remember, he's writing 30 years later to Christians who were suffering under persecution in Rome. And it it starts to make a bit more sense here because what happened to John was not the first time in history that one of God's messengers gets killed. Um, There's a bunch of similarities with John's story, the story here, to some of the prophets and messengers in the Old Testament. One man in particular whose name comes up in this, the prophet Elijah, if you know his story, um, Elijah was sent to God's people to call them to repentance to call them away from worshiping other gods and back to the one true God. And the reason they were all worshiping other gods was because the king, a guy called Ahab, uh, had gone and married a foreign woman named Jezebel, and she loved her idols. She loved her false gods, and, and she influenced him, who then influenced the people. And then God sends Elijah, says, you guys are all wicked, and I'm going to destroy you. You need to come back and repent. Well, of course, Ahab and definitely Jezebel didn't love that at all. Uh, She just absolutely hated his guts, and she tried to have Elijah killed multiple times. She was unsuccessful. Elijah stayed a prophet up until the day when God miraculously took him up into heaven. Uh, But then in Malachi chapter 4, there's a a prophecy that Elijah, or at least one like Elijah, is going to come back and again call the people's hearts back to God. And so people were waiting for this Elijah figure to come back onto the scene. And many people thought uh, that John the Baptist was him, and then some people later on thought that Jesus was him. 
Uh, Jesus later on actually makes a connection in, in John's gospel. He says, yeah, if you like, John the Baptist is the Elijah that is to come. He came calling people uh, to repentance. John, you see, gets the same reception from the ruling class that Elijah had. The powerful people hated him. Now, again, what does this have to do with Jesus? And what does it have to do with us? Well, all of the prophets, from Moses to Elijah to John the Baptist, have had pretty challenging careers as God's messenger. And John's career has just ended pretty dramatically. So what do we expect is going to happen to Jesus? Will he come off any better than all the prophets who came before him? Well, see, of course, we know the answer to that question. And Mark's readers knew the answer to that question because they were reading this on the other side of the cross. They knew that Jesus was going to be treated even worse than John had been, even worse than the prophets. Jesus came to his own people preaching repentance, and his own people rejected him. He was arrested. His fate was decided by another weak ruler named Pilate who was pretending to be strong. But at least Pilate wasn't married to an awful wife demanding that Jesus be killed, right? There's no Herodias, there's no Jezebel in Jesus' story. Well, technically that's right, but if you read the story, there's another character that is pretty influential in forcing Pilate's hand to send Jesus to the cross. Do you know who that character was? It's actually a group of characters. The crowds, stirred up by the religious leaders, calling in the streets for Jesus to be crucified. They're the Jezebels. They're the Herodias in Jesus' story. Because Pilate is weak, they get their way. See, friends, God's message always attracts both people who welcome it and people who are so offended by it, so outraged, that they're going to stop at nothing but to silence the message and the messengers. And why is that? Because we're in the middle of a cosmic battle that we cannot see. And the real enemies here are not Jezebel. They're not Herodias. They're not the crowds. They're not whoever your enemies are, the people that oppose you. The real enemies are the powers, the forces of evil that we can't even see. They're battling against God and have been so since the beginning. And one day they're going to be lo- they're going to lose. Their fate was sealed at the cross. They're furious. You know, Jesus speaks for all the messengers who came before him when he told his disciples why he was going to die. Why he was going to die. This is what he says in John chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And then verse 18, no one takes my life from me. It's not, not Pilate's really not ultimately responsible. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. He chose to do this. This was his plan to lay his life down for the sheep. And he didn't, you know, he didn't relish suffering. He wasn't all a pain lover. He didn't enjoy the torment. It's just that the joy of obeying the Father, the joy that was set before him was just so much greater than his lack of wanting pain. It's the joy of rescuing you, the joy of rescuing me. That's what drove Jesus to the cross. It's what helped him keep going. It's what helped him endure. He was and is the suffering servant who came to give his life. So again, friends, what does this have to do with us? Jesus, we see, is the the prophet who was rejected by those closest to him. Jesus 
is the commander-in-chief who sends people out with his authority to do God's will. And Jesus is the suffering servant who, who came to die for, for us. But you know, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, let me tell you something. You're, you're going to face some of the same challenges that he did, some of the same rejection, some of the same missed opportunities. This kind of strain, it's inevitable. And some of you guys could tell your stories. Um, and, and the strain we face, the opposition we face, it shouldn't be because we're a, a bunch of offensive jerks who go out and just you know, act like we're better than everybody. And um, no, we're called to go out like the disciples in weakness and humility and yet still face rejection. Why? Because people don't want to be told that they need to give up control. They don't want to be told that they have a problem. They want to trust in themselves and follow their own hearts. And, and you know, those people may not be cutting your heads off or cutting our heads off, but you may find people distancing themselves from you. You may miss out on a promotion or other things. Look at Jesus. He, the people he spent 30 years of his life with in his hometown, they, they want nothing to do with him. And, it, it, you know, it's not because, uh, not because he was rude or arrogant. He had the message and the words of life. He, he knew he was their greatest hope. And they couldn't handle that. They couldn't handle it. You know, if Jesus persevered in the face of constant rejection for the joy set before him, if you are joined to him then you can persevere too. You can keep going. You can keep going because you're joined to Jesus. Remember what I said at the beginning, the more you know who Jesus is, the more you know who you are and where you're going. And the more you know where you're going, the more you're able to keep going when life gets hard. Think again about Jesus' disciples going out to, on the road to preach about Jesus and the kingdom of God with no money, no phones, no food, no, no Jesus, no, or sorry, just Jesus. Um, they were joined to him spiritually. He wasn't physically with them. He was like us, you know. He, they were going to face trial after trial, rejection after rejection, funeral after funeral, and the gospel and the mission is going to keep going and going and going. Why? Because they were joined to Jesus. He was their commander-in-chief, and he'd already won the battle. I wonder, what do you think is the hardest thing about being a Christian? I mean, there are some days when it feels like everything is hard. I mean, for me, just saying no to the things my flesh wants is hard enough. Even And beyond that, you know, we face disappointments and trials every single day. Maybe you've got people to look, lean on. Maybe you don't in some seasons of life. There's no guarantee of what, of what kind of help you might find along the way unless you've been joined to Jesus. Unless you've been joined to Jesus, the one who was condemned in our place. Being joined to Jesus, facing the same rejection that he did, carrying out the same mission, suffering with him, you know, that's our guarantee that everything that we're going through now is accomplishing good things in us and preparing us for glory. So we keep going. I wonder if you believe that.
Let me, let me finish with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I love this. Just, just listen. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. See, his spirit, our spirit were joined. They testify together that we are God's children. And if children are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. I don't know who needs to hear this, but that suffering is temporary. The glory lasts forever. So keep going. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for those truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you that suffering is temporary. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are doing it really tough right now. You know their pain. You know their sadness. And you're able to wipe every tear away. Not just by changing their circumstances, but reminding them of Jesus, their older brother, the one who went before them, the one who endured such hostility at the hands of sinful men and did not lose heart. So I pray for those who are feeling like they are wanting to give up. Lord, would your Holy Spirit come and remind them and give them a picture of Jesus that they might keep going when it's hard. Lord, I pray for those who are listening, who don't know Jesus, who have never been saved by him, who are still trying to struggle and and live life on their own and, 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 and get right with God on their own. Lord, I pray that they would hear the good news of the gospel today, that everything that needed to be done has already been accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And getting right with God means being joined to Jesus. So I I pray that you would give those people hearing this the faith to say yes to Jesus, to say, yes, I want, I believe this. I want to be joined to you. I want to know you. I want you to come into my life. I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to make me right. I want you to adopt me into your family. Lord God, I pray whoever's hearing this, Lord, that they would pray that prayer and that you would save them by the power of Jesus' blood poured out for them. For us who have been saved already at some point, Lord, we know that it wasn't because of anything that we did. It was all by grace. And so, Lord, help us to worship you now with a renewed sense of awe and wonder and gratitude. Give us what we need to persevere, to keep going today this week, this pandemic season, this year. Lord, help us keep our eyes so locked onto Jesus and help us to grow in in just overflowing joy. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.